And uh, last week we uh, took a look at what is traditionally referred to as the triumphal entry. Uh, we focused our attention uh, not uh, on the joyful throng of people so much as on Jesus weeping over the uh, future of the people of Jerusalem. Um, especially when you compare that uh, with the story of Zacchaeus, who received Jesus joyfully, because, of course, Jesus will go on to be rejected in, in, in Jerusalem. And uh, I would love to have had more time to talk about Zacchaeus, because he's such a, such a fascinating uh, character, and, uh, and how he, his life turns around when he recognizes uh, Jesus for who he is and receives him joyfully, and he repents of his old, empty ways, turns uh, from his, his sin, and uh, receives Christ. And Jesus rejoices over Zacchaeus and rejoices over his future. And uh, the story of uh, Jesus' uh, last entry into Jerusalem is a story of stark contrast, isn't it? The contrast between uh, the future of, of uh, Israel, uh, Jerusalem, and what, what God wanted uh, for them. Um, it, it doesn't culminate in Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, though. It, uh, if you uh, go to uh, Luke 19, where we were last week, the chapter actually ends with uh, what traditionally is referred to as the cleansing of the temple. And, and uh, so we were in Luke last week. This week we're in Mark. Uh, but if you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, uh, which contains uh, and begins with the triumphal entry... Um, it, uh, it uh, also moves on to talk about this episode where Jesus goes into the temple. He goes into the heart of the city of Jerusalem and into the, the, the temple there, and uh, he, uh, he cleans house. Um, now, in Luke and Matthew, you get the impression that like, it happens uh, almost immediately, like, like Jesus, you know, uh, comes down the Mount of Olives and the people are, are, are rejoicing and he's weeping and then he goes into the city and goes into the temple and cleans, the te cleans out the temple uh, courts. But, but um, Mark uh, is interesting uh, because Mark uh, says this in Mark uh, chapter 11, verse 11, it says, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus and the disciples spend the night in Bethany that night, and perhaps in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom he had just raised from the dead, a mere matter of days prior to this. And, uh, and then they come back in Jerusalem the following day, which appears to be Jesus' pattern for the week. He would come in with his disciples into the city for the, in the day, and then he would retreat to Bethany uh, for, the, for the night times. And uh, uh, Mark has the account of the cursing of the fig tree happening the next day in conjunction with the temple cleansing. And so, it's, it's, so it seems like this. He goes into Jerusalem, uh, with a lot of fanfare, and he goes to the heart of the city, goes into the temple, and he looks around. He just observes. He observes what's happening there. And uh, then he goes back to uh, Bethany for the night. 
and with his uh, with his disciples, and then he returns uh, the following day. Um, and uh, Mark tells the story of the the fig tree there, uh, which we don't have time really to comment on. Uh, if you want to message me, I offer you a couple of comments. But but I want to I want to make a couple of comments this morning before we move into chapter twelve about the cleansing of the temple because it's just such a um, well, it's just such an important part of the uh, the narrative, the scripture, gospel narrative. So a couple of things about the cleansing of the temple. You, you, you remember the story. You've, you've read it before. Even if you didn't read it this week, you, you've read it before. And I hope you have read it this week as we've shared the scriptures in advance for us so we can study the scriptures together. But, but the, the first thing is that the, the cleansing of the temple, where Jesus goes in and he drives out the, the money changers out of the temple court. Um, the first thing is that it's set in scripture, uh, theologically, as the Lord of glory coming to his house. Uh, the Messiah, King of heaven, coming to his rightful throne on earth. Uh, it, it, all kinds of Old Testament scriptures come to mind, but one of them is, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Um, you... If you read on, and as as we do read on into the what's referred to as the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24 and Jesus' predictions of uh, future predictions, there Um, it's also in Mark 13. It's in Luke 21, the Olivet Discourse, and it's in that uh, sermon or message that Jesus will talk about the Antichrist. And you may recall that when Jesus talks about the Antichrist, he says. When you see him standing where he ought not. The Antichrist is an imposter Christ. Standing where he ought not, where's that? In the temple. Just like Daniel had prophesied. And Jesus mentions Daniel when he's talking about, about that in, in, uh, in uh, Matthew 24. But uh, here, Jesus is in the temple. Where he ought to be. <laughs> Because it's his house. Because he is the Lord of glory. He is the, uh, the great I am. The, the, so that's the first thing is that to, we should have in mind when we think about the cleansing of the temple scene in scripture. That it is depicted theologically as the Lord coming to his house. The second thing is that uh, is about this is that it has traditionally been interpreted as a divine indictment of any kind of transaction taking place within the temple courts or within the church lobby. So in the old days, what the, the way that that was interpreted and applied was if you had a guest musician into a church service and and they wanted to sell their CDs in the lobby, you well, they couldn't do that because that was exchanging exchanging money in the in the temple courts and. Um, you know, or if you uh, uh, wanted to make a loaf of bread and 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 uh, sell your bread for to raise money for missions, that was great. But don't don't exchange the money inside the church building. Uh, we could talk about a lot of things here because a church a building a church building is not a temple, and uh, there's all kinds of reasons why that is just a misapplication. Um, I can be pretty. Uh, confident when I tell you that that's not the intent of what the scripture is is there for. 
Um, you might want to note Jesus' words there. He says, you've made it a den of robbers. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Uh, what was going on in the temple courts was fraud. It was, not only was it fraud, but it was fraud in the name of God. And that's a very, very serious thing. And uh, totally, absolutely wrong and inappropriate. So it would kind of go something like this. Oh, oh you, you have a pigeon to offer to the Lord? Well, we're sorry, but that doesn't meet the standards of what's acceptable to the Lord. So you can buy one of these pigeons from us because these pigeons are, uh, are um, certified uh, to be acceptable to God. Uh, and you'll notice as well that they're referred to as money changers. Now, why would they be money changers in the court of the temple? Well, it simply worked like this. Um, the, the, the currency of the day was the Roman currency, but they didn't like the Roman currency, so they had their own currency. They actually created temple currency. And so you, if you showed up with money, you would have to change your money. You, could, you need to buy our pigeons, but in order to buy our pigeons, you can't buy our pigeons with your heathen money. You need this holy temple sanctified money. Uh, oh, and by the way, the exchange rate <laughs> on that is a little steep. Uh, is such that you would be left with the sure certainty that this was actually a big scam and somebody was making a lot of money. They had a good thing going, you might say, only the truth be told, it was not a good thing at all. And one more thing, it was all happening in the court of the Gentiles. Uh, and you say, well, what's the significance of that, the fact that it's happening in the court of the Gentiles? Well, if you um, go back to Isaiah, where uh, the, the, the prophet Isaiah uh, t uh, speaks on behalf of the Lord and talks about his house being a house of prayer, you know, my house shall be called a house of prayer, you've made it a den of robbers. In Isaiah, where he talks about his house being a house of prayer, he says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Listen to the context of that statement. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister him, to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples or all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So they, what they were doing would have been an offense prohibiting uh, the, uh, other people, Gentile people, other nations and peoples from coming to faith in God, and that is probably one of the most serious offenses that we could possibly ever commit, is getting between somebody and their relationship with the Lord, don't you think? So when Jesus cleans house, and it says he is just, like it's the most, probably the most, um, uh, uh, can I say violent scene that we see Jesus engaged in, uh, other than the violence that's committed 
against him in a few chapters' time. Uh, It's an amazing scene as tables are flying and money is flying and birds are flying and people and animals are running in every direction. And it sets up our passage for today. It's not our text for today. We're going to kind of just go move on from there. I wanted to mention it because it's really, really important. Um, but it sets up, uh, sets up uh, today's passage because as Jesus, uh, after he does uh, this, clean, clean, cleans the temple, he goes back to Bethany for the night. And uh, the next day, the authorities are all there in the temple. Of course they're all there in the temple. Because this is colossal for them. Uh, and you know, Alex mentioned authority. The issue here is very much an issue of authority. And you need to keep that in mind because we need to keep it in our minds because it was on their minds and it should be on our minds too. So, so they're all there the next day. And uh, they're talking about the audacity of this carpenter from Galilee. And suddenly, there he is, strolling across the court grounds, just like he owns the place. You can almost see them tripping over each other as they're trying to look dignified while scurrying along in their long flowing robes with their pompous garments and adornments, scurrying all up together to confront him. Mark chapter 11, verse 27 and 28. It says, And they, that's Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? They're furious. And they demand that he tell them where he thinks he's getting this, this authority to do these things. What things? What things are they talking about? They're talking about yesterday. And they've had all night to stew about it. And here's Jesus, calm as a cucumber. He says, I'll answer your question if you first answer mine. Now that sounds like a fair deal, doesn't it? But Jesus knows there's absolutely no sincerity in their questions. It's not really even a question. It's more of an accusation, isn't it? And uh, you know how important our motives are when we are seeking truth or when we approach God, how important our, our motives are. You know, it's not uncommon for people to study Scripture and to listen to sermon after sermon, not to learn what Scripture says. They have another motive, a more personal agenda, a more political agenda. And that's where these men were at. Enough of that. What was Jesus' question for them? Again, this is leading up to, or the con- up to 
our text. This is the context of our text. What was the question he asked them? He said, if, if, I'll answer your question if you answer my question first. And then he asked them this question. It was about John the Baptist, remember? He said, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And suddenly, before they even knew what hit, what hit them, they had a problem. Jesus had put them right on the horns of a dilemma. Because if they said from heaven, or if they said from, from, uh, from earth, from man, they knew that all the people had followed John and believed John's message, and most of them had been baptized by John, and they considered John a great prophet and a forerunner to the Christ. But if they said from heaven, then they knew that that meant that Jesus was going to come right back and say, then why don't you follow what John said? And so they, were on, they had this dilemma, and they didn't know what to do, and After they probably what seemed like a fairly long, awkward moment, they uh, appointed a spokesman, and he comes back to Jesus, and he says, we don't know. That hurt. <laughs> I mean, that had to hurt, right? Because these guys set them up as the guys that knew everything, right? They were the authorities. They were, they were the people who set themselves up as the ones who were in authority, the ones who, the only ones who could answer the questions, and the ones who knew stuff. Anything you want to know about Scripture, anything you want to know about God, you had to ask these guys. And so they had to come to Jesus and they had to say, We don't know. And Jesus looks at them and simply says, Then neither will I answer your question. That leads into a parable. It's called the parable, uh, among other things, it's called the, the, the parable of the defiant tenants. Uh, parables uh, have a unique way of revealing truth while concealing it at the same time. And uh, there's a lot more that we could say about that, but but we're not going to talk about the parable today either because, again, this is context, okay? But it's important context. The parable of the defiant tenants, it wasn't, in, it wasn't intended by Jesus to de-escalate the situation, let's just say that. Because in the parable of the defiant tenants, Jesus cast the leaders in Jerusalem as a bunch of uh, rebellious murderers. And they got the message. Um, it says in verse 12, then after he told them the parable, it says they were seeking to arrest him. This is 12.12, Mark 12.12. They were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. <laughs> yeah. So they left him and they went away. Now, they didn't leave him alone. I mean, they're coming back. 
right? Because that's what they do here. It's like, it's like a tag team, old tag team wrestling where they, you know, they gang up on him and they're taking turns to see who could take him down because they realize that the stakes couldn't be higher for them right now. Everything is on the line now. They have got to take him down. You know, it, it, it uh, you see Pharisees, you see uh, Sadducees, you see Herodians, uh, normally they didn't get along with each other at all. Normally they didn't have any use for each other because they had almost nothing in common. But they had something really big in common now, and that was the, the, the need to take this guy down. There's an old saying that says, politics makes strange bedfellows. And that's what it means. So our passage today, is actually Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 37, and it contains four exchanges, four more exchanges between the religious leaders and Jesus. Now, we're only going to focus on the first of those four and the last of those four for sake of time, but I would encourage you to read the middle two as well because they're, they're, they're just uh, spectacular. Jesus uh, was so um, masterful in his... Uh, dealings with these these men. But we're just going to deal with the first and the last. So the first one starts in um, Mark chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. It says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and they said, uh, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Let's just pause for a moment. I want you to pray with me and ask as we move through the rest of these scriptures that that God will show us uh, what he wants for us to have today for our lives. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this passage and and the tremendous um, sense of of um, anticipation that has developed throughout this uh, last number of days as Jesus has made his way to Jerusalem and has come into the city and is now engaging with those uh, leaders uh, uh, who are um, pulling out all the stops now. And uh, he's called them right out. The parable uh, uh, of the the defiant tenants, Lord, um, he knows. He knows what they are intending to do and what they are going to do. And yet, Lord, you showed your, your love and grace in these days, even in those days. Help us to see here, Lord, in this passage, what you um, have for us and for our lives today. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We know you're true and you care about, you don't care about anyone's opinion. It's like, we know that you would never uh, worry about being politically correct. You, you would never just say anything just simply to appeal to your base. They're buttering him up, right? They're setting him up. Uh, the question is, is not sincere at all. Uh, they figure they've got him trapped. They're going to beat him at his own game. He put them on the horns of a dilemma, right? 
And they had to come back and say, we don't know. So they say, well, let's give him some of his own medicine. Let's beat him at his own game. We'll ask him a question that he can't answer. And uh, it's a perfect trap because we, we know there's no way out for him, right? Mm-hmm. So the question is totally insincere, but it's not illegitimate. It is a real question, and Jesus gives them a real answer, and it's an answer that leaves them in shock and awe. Tribute money. Is it lawful or right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, tribute money started in Rome in, in about AD uh, 6. So, you know, we're talking, uh, you know, a good part of a lifetime has gone by. And, and the more zealous among the Jews, uh, they refused to pay the tribute. Um, they felt so that doing so was to surrender to the governing power of Rome uh, and their dominion over them. And so they refused to recognize the Roman authorities. And uh, the zealots, the Jewish zealots, they wouldn't even handle uh, Roman currency. Uh, but of course, to take an official stance, public stance uh, like that, uh, was to incur the wrath of Rome. And you can read in history about how that, what, how that actually happened. And, and if you make a little note, if you're a note taker, which you all should be, you could jot down Luke chapter 13, verse 1, because Jesus refers there to a massacre that happened as a result of a bunch of zealots revolting against the, the, um, uh, the Roman state. And it says there that uh, the, the, the authorities mingled their blood with the blood of the sacrifices. And you recall last week when we talked about the triumphal entry, when Jesus wept over the city, he predicted a time that would come some 30 or 40, uh, 40 years later where, yeah, you, you can go back and check the notes on that and uh, Titus, uh, com, uh, Roman commander in AD 70. Um, but so, like, so what's Jesus gonna, how's he gonna answer the question? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we be paying taxes to Caesar or should we not? That was the question. Um, so what's Jesus going to do? Verses 15, 16, and 17. But knowing their hypocrisy, see, they were not sincere in the question. He said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to, thing, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Um, Aiden, if you could bring up the picture uh, of the denarius, the Roman denarius uh, on the screen, uh, I'd appreciate it. So what we're looking at there is a Roman denarius. It was a small silver coin about the size of our dime. Uh, but it was worth a day's labor. Uh, they call that inflation now. Uh, on the head side of the coin, 
which would be to your right, uh, there was the profile of uh, Tiberius, Emperor, Roman Emperor Tiberius. And it's surrounded by an inscription there that uh, is translated, Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the tail side of the coin, to your left, uh, the image shows Tiberius seated on a throne. And the inscription there is Pontiff Maxim, which means priest most high. So that was a Roman denarius. Now the Jews had two issues that were represented by this coin. On the one hand, it represented their subjection to the Roman authorities uh, over them, including taxes. But the other part of this is that Rome, remember, is a pagan nation. And Caesar, even with the coin, is making blatantly blasphemous claims to be divine, which means to be a god. Caesar set himself up as a god to be worshipped. So, when somebody sets themselves up as a god to be worshipped, should they be worshipped? Should we worship Caesar or not? Oh, no, that wasn't the question, was it? What if that was the question? Should we worship Caesar? No. I hope we can agree on that. Should Caesar receive what is due him? Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because the two things are not at odds because you could call them two sides of the same coin. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. Or take a look. We'll put it on the screen. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. That's chapter, uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 5, it says, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. That subjection there is subjection to earthly authorities. Uh, for because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is, is uh, owed. What do you owe the government? What do we owe the government? Much more than a lot of us are willing to acknowledge sometimes. You know, the Romans were fav famous for their roads, right? The Roman road, it was, they, were, they had built, they built thousands of miles of road, you know, that people used. And people used those roads to do all kinds of things, including make money, <laughs> You know, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the free market was thriving at this time in the world. And, and not only that, but those roads later would be used by the apostles to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
Um, do you think we owe anything for the roads that we travel on? Of course we do. Um, the authority, uh, authorities that exist are put in place by God. That's what Paul says. And when we submit to the authorities, earthly authorities, we're actually submitting to God. That was part of Paul's point there in Romans chapter 13. And uh, should we show respect uh, by, being, by being subjected to things like paying taxes, for example? Um, if we don't, we're actually rebelling against God. And you can, you know, there's a lot to this um, teaching in Scripture. Um, we won't, we won't take a lot of time with it this morning. But uh, I, I'm always, uh, I'm, I marvel over Jesus before Pilate, the governor. Remember, you know, as the story goes on, Jesus is within within a few days' time. He's going to be standing before Pilate, who was the Roman governor uh, in the in the in the region. And at one point, Pilate will say to him. Do you not know that I have a, the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus will say this to Pilate. He will say, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Interesting, eh? So they thought they had this, this created this dilemma where they had trapped Jesus, where he's not going to be able to escape. There is no escape from this track because you can't, you can't reconcile these two things. You, you can't reconcile them. Paying taxes to Caesar, not paying taxes to Caesar. Paying taxes to Caesar uh, without dishonoring uh, God because Caesar thinks he's God. And just like that, Jesus resolves it. Just like that. He says, show me a coin. Show me a denarius. He takes it. I'm sure he, you know, probably rolled it and flipped it in his fingers looking at it. Because he says, it says in the text, uh, let me look at it. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So he looks at this coin. And then he looks at them. And he says, whose image is on this coin? And they say Caesar's. And then he says these words. He says, render to Caesar the things that are owed to Caesar. And render to God what only God is deserving of. Who do we worship? We worship God alone. But that doesn't mean that we don't owe others or respect others or honor others. There's an important biblical principle here and we could talk about man being made in the image of God. We could get in a lot of discussions as to uh, some of the, the um, implications of these, these uh, exchanges. But uh, I want to move on for, for the sake of time. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, Jesus just, he just resolved this he resolves this just so uh, succinct, succinctly, and he says, and in text says, they marveled at him. Because you know that he's totally amazing, right? You do know that. That's what this is here for. So that we will look at it and go, wow. Wow. 
The next two uh, exchanges uh, take place, or, or they're chronicled there in verses 18 through 34. But I wanted to, uh, to end with the, the fourth exchange uh, in Mark chapter 12, uh, and that's verses 35, 36, and 37. Um, now, I left my phone on my table here, and I have no idea what time it is. What time is it? 38, okay. So we're going to wrap it up here. Verse 35. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how can he be his son. And then it says the great throng heard him gladly. This great throng that had been following, they're following all the way along, right? They're seeing all of this, right? And they're listening and they're hearing and it says they, they, uh, they heard him gladly. Like Zacchaeus. One of the fascinating things about this, it's, it's like, you know, they've been asking all these questions and if you go through, the, you know, that's the kind of the pattern. And so now it's, it's like Jesus decides, I'm going to ask you a question. And so he does. And the fascinating thing about this question, one of the fascinating things about this question, is that it focuses on an apparent contradiction in Scripture. Did you know there are apparent contradictions in Scripture? What's the difference between an apparent contradiction and a contradiction? Well, uh, an apparent contradiction is something that appears to be a contradiction. doesn't necessarily mean that it is a contradiction. But it has the appearance of being a contradiction. And Jesus focuses on an apparent contradiction in Scripture. And he, he points out that, you know, guys, in the, in the Old Testament Scriptures, although he would never call them the Old Testament Scriptures, we do that, right? But he says, you know, in the, in the, in the Scriptures it says that over, over here it says that, you know, that the Messiah is the son of David. But over here in this other scripture, even David himself calls the Messiah his Lord. How is that possible? How could the Messiah be the son of David and be David's Lord? Well, it's a, it's a blatant contradiction. <laughs> and Jesus focuses on that and he asks them. That's, that's his question to them. I don't know if they realize it or not. Uh, I, I, they don't realize it. But Jesus is reaching out to them here. He's reaching out to them here. Because, and the reason I say that is because the answer to that con apparent contradiction is Jesus. He is the answer to that question. Because, as you know, as we've been coming through the scriptures over the last three years, through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, the strong focus has been, right from the beginning, especially coming into the New Testament and the promises and the herald of the angels, the everything, that he is God in the flesh. 
In other words, Jesus is both the son of David, a human being, and David's Lord, the Lord of glory, the eternal son of God. And when we realize that and recognize that, and when God reveals that truth to us, he's actually revealing to us the only way that we can be saved. The only way we can be saved is by a Savior who becomes one of us to represent us and to give his life for us, while at the same time, being able to defeat sin and death and hell and the grave and rise up victorious to be our living Lord. The answer to Jesus' question Is Jesus. He is reaching out to them. And he's doing it in a, doing it in a masterful way. Because he, he is amazing. He is, he, is, he is totally, absolutely amazing. And over and over and over again, we have those words in Scripture, in, 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 throughout the Gospel accounts, they were amazed. They were amazed. They were astonished. They marveled. <laughs> Why? Because he's amazing. He is so amazing. Because he is Lord Jesus. We worship him. He saves us. There is no one has ever been like him nor will anyone ever be like him. He is all alone in a class all his own. And we get to worship him. We get to be his. We get to belong to him because he calls us to put our faith in him and to accept him and to receive him joyfully and to follow him and be part of his family. Are you amazed by Jesus? Have you been amazed by him? Have you seen him for who he is and recognized him and received him for who he is? Let me, uh, let me pray with you, if you would. Can we pray together? Lord, I thank you so much for those who are here in this place today and for those who have joined us online as well for this time of worship and and Bible time and and fellowship. And Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for uh, the scriptures that are inspired and, and are inerrant and they are sufficient to instruct us in all aspects of what the things that matter to our lives for all eternity. Here and now and for all eternity, and I thank you, Lord, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, together, we thank you that you allow us to see who you are and why you came so that we can receive you and follow you. 
I pray, Lord, that you would grant faith today. I thank you for how you reached out to those, those men. They, they were so blind and, and so hateful and so um, resistant, so pride, proud and prideful and, and, and arrogant and fearful and pompous. And yet you reached out to them. Just like you reach out to us. And you call us to repent of our pride and our arrogance and our self-sufficiency and our, our ways and humble ourselves and accept you and receive you and worship you and acknowledge you are the great one. You are the Savior. You are the Lord. You You are the son of David, the Messiah. You are the son of God. Lord, we just worship you today. We receive you. We receive the forgiveness that you promise by faith as we put our faith in you today, Lord. And may you um, be honored in our lives this day. And each day we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you once again for joining us for our online church experience this morning, spending this time with us and sharing the journey with us. Would you do yourself a favor and would you do us a favor? Would you subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss a video? And while you're there, you can check out all of the other great video content over the last several years. And then be sure to like us and follow our page on Facebook. The more that you get involved on social media, the more people get to see this video content and the further that gospel message goes that we were able to preach today. Hit that notification bell so that you never miss a video again. It'll send a notification to your phone, to your email. You can click it and go. It's as simple as that. And then for all other information, you can go to our website, sharethejourney.ca. Make sure that you stay in touch, that you connect. If you haven't yet filled out that connect card that's pinned in the comment section below this video, just take a moment, fill out those short questions so that we can connect with you and we'll be able to share the journey with you. We hope that you are blessed this week.